Hello, welcome back. That was a very brief pause after a very, very moving uh, panel with um, organizing toward abolition. I think a point that was made very early on about dismantling, changing, and building, and how those three things have to coexist. And that was just very beautifully said. Uh, so thank you for everything there. So many resources, and we harvested all of them. Uh, so I would like to welcome a dear friend of mine uh, who I met when we first began organizing this. So I'm really excited to have them here. I'd like to bring forward Kira for our next panel. Thanks so much, Brian. It's good to see you again. And thanks to everybody for putting this on. I remember when this was just in the idea phase and it took some turns, but I think really just came out um, in such an amazing way. Uh, yeah, and I am really honored to follow up on that amazing panel that we just had and really just like grateful for all of that framing and insight because that's just like, it's so important. Um, abolition, just like, to be holding that in and bringing that into everything that we're doing. Um, so I'm gonna try to figure out how to share my screen, but um, hey everyone, Kira, I use they, them, and she, her pronouns, and I'm zooming in from Western Abenaki unceded territory. And I'm really excited to be here with all of you. Um, can I screen share? Yep, I can, okay. Um, Can everybody see this? Um, yeah, so just gonna, I'm just gonna get right into it. Um, and I guess the first thing to, to, to preface all of this with is a content warning, um, legal self-defense, like a lot of this is just talking about police and ICE immigration authorities and their, the violence that they enact on people, specifically um, black, indigenous, people of color, queer and trans folks, poor folks, um, and, I'm going to have some slides that have pictures of law enforcement and immigration authorities, but I'm not showing slides that have pictures of um, cops or immigration authorities like directly in that moment enacting violence on people. So there's images of cops, but they're not like touching anybody or doing anything in that moment that's violent. Um, the conversation, uh, yeah, is, it might bring stuff up for folks in particular if you are somebody who has had particularly violent experiences with uh, state agents and this is a hard conversation for you like uh, definitely for anybody but especially those folks please like push pause on this like shut the computer take space whatever you need to do and um if that is you and and you want to like engage with this content but maybe in a different setting like please reach out to me one-on-one -on -one. I'm happy to chat through things and try to like make sure you have access to this content even if the delivery of this like big zoom room is not um the way that is feeling good for you in this moment to like absorb this um and yeah, other than that, if I'm not making sense or if I can clarify something, I'll, I'll try to keep an eye on the chat if you have questions. Um, but the thing I probably won't have time to do is to answer hypothetical questions about different fact patterns. That's something that people really like to, um, to ask when we do legal self-defense trainings. And I just, I don't have the time in this training to talk about like, well, what about this situation? But clarifying questions are amazing. Um, I get a little bit incoherent when I'm nervous. So also if you're like, need to tell me to slow down or re-explain, just like uh, gesticulate wildly with your camera on or pop a question in the chat, uh, whatever will work is good with me. Um, and just some like quick intro kind of intentions I wanna try to bring into this training is um, trying to like reject white supremacy culture, which is hard because it's everywhere, right? Um, being the white supremacy culture is it's like not specifically in race-based terms, but it is like kind of invisible social and cultural norms that cement racism and anti-blackness um, and really are a detriment to our movements and our projects, even for those of us who are white, um, while that is also privileging us. So trying to like attack the way that white supremacy culture shows up in training spaces, uh, specifically today, thinking about things like perfectionism, um, it's more important to be accountable when we do make mistakes rather than to never make them. So I'll probably make a ton of mistakes in this training. It'll be like bumbly and we'll get through it together. And, um, you know, going into that with the, like not being defensive, if 
um, if we're hearing things that are maybe other people making mistakes or maybe other people saying or doing things that we wouldn't say or do um, and thinking about feedback as like a, a gift, as a labor that is meant to deepen a relationship rather than to undermine it. Um, so feel free to drop some feedback in the chat or um, kind of say whatever you want, add your own um, perspectives and experiences to this, right? Because uh, there's not one right way to do this. There's not one right way to do legal self-defense. Um, there's not like, it's not um, one thing or this thing. There's like a lot of both ands in this. And um, if your direct personal experience doesn't match what I'm saying, um, I'm probably missing something. So trust your gut, um, but also with that, and especially for those of us whose intersections of privileged identities um, maybe have like corrupted our gut with things like anti-blackness and ableism and racism and classism and this is heteropatriarchy. It's like trust your gut and also be critical of the ways that your gut might have been corrupted by systemic oppression. Um, so I'm going to try to to get through all of this content today, but recognizing that there's way too much to fit in an hour and there's way too much to learn and to do in the world. Um, so we're not going to be able to get through everything that I would hope that we could um, tonight and that's okay and um, we're in this for like the long haul and these problems have existed and will continue to exist and we're just like doing what we can while we can in the best much of an integrity way as possible and that maybe means like uh, not covering all of the topics that a full legal self-defense training might otherwise entail. Um, the last tenet of white supremacy that shows up in particular in a training setting um, it's like power hoarding and this, you know, power dynamic right now, especially for me as an attorney, as somebody who has been through law school, it programs me to present my opinion as objective truth. Um, so uh, that's like a, a toxic trait of lawyers is we're really opinionated. Um, I'm also a Virgo makes it worse, I would say, <laughs> like just this is our truth. Um, and it's actually just an opinion. So be critical and curious and skeptical of things that I'm sharing and um, you know, don't listen to me too much. Like you're, you're right. Your perspectives and differences from me are valid. And we're all kind of learning this together, even though it is unfortunately due to the, the settings of this training, like a, a lot of it is just a one-way information dump. Um, and if you are curious about white supremacy culture, Tema Okun has a really great zine. I put a link to it at the end of this presentation. So um, speaking of things that are like, I'm really opinionated about and present them as truth, I uh, just want to talk really quickly about abolition because that is for sure a truth for me. Um, I think that abolition is like, it's both a goal and a theory of change. It's like both utopia and it's how we get there. So it's um, really important for me to be framing everything that I'm doing from a perspective of abolition. Um, it's like a crime right now to just exist. Um, and it is a crime to resist and it's uh, illegal for us to, to just like be alive and take care of each other and our ecosystems. So uh, we think about laws and cops and courts and they exist to target people, whether that's because they're poor or black or indigenous or undocumented or disabled or queer or trans or they want autonomy over their own body. Um, and then we have all these laws and cops and courts that go after anybody that challenges the structures that cement these oppressions. So we have both of these things. Um, legal self-defense as a practice can be helpful whether you're trying to just survive in the world or whether you're trying to organize a revolution or both. Um, and the last thing too is just the more that you put that wall up between yourself and law enforcement, the more that you make, uh, make that wall a cultural norm, um, make that resistance part of the kind of everyday practice of your community, you normalize it, um, and that keeps everybody safer. So, uh, that's just the baseline assumption for this training. If you're not an abolitionist, um, oops, too far. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Um, welcome, thanks for putting up with me. And that's totally fine to not be an abolitionist to be on this panel. I don't wanna go back and forth about it right now, but if you do have questions or wanna talk about it, that's my email on the slide and I would love to chat later. Um, but the thing that I do ask of everybody is that this is not information that we share with law enforcement. So not to talk about this training with members of law enforcement, recognizing that like they could totally be on this panel um, and there's really nothing we could do about that. They could be in this Zoom room. Um, but it's important to just minimize the amount of information that we share with law enforcement, including the content of this presentation. Um, because what we know is that what you tell one cop, you're functionally telling every single cop and every single agency, state, federal, um, think about like data fusion centers where the Homeland Security 
um, creates this hub and information is shared fluidly between state and local police and state troopers and border patrol and private corporations and these nasty privatized police forces like Securitas, they all share and exchange information. And what you tell even just like your friend's cousin who's a cop, um, you're, you're giving information to this huger system. So even if you don't believe that, you know, every cop is part of this system and like is dangerous and a threat to like our all continued existence and survival, what you tell one cop, you tell the worst cop. Um, so that, yeah, that's where I'm coming from with this and just to dive right into it, what is legal self-defense? Um, it's sometimes called Know Your Rights. We've, uh, I learned from this guy, Carlton Williams, who's an amazing, brilliant black attorney in uh, the National Lawyers Guild, that it's a little bit more accurate to call it legal self-defense because it's not magic and the constitution like wasn't written for most or any of us on this call anyway. So um, it applies to, it's, it's basically like how to stay safe, as safe as possible when you're interacting with um, law enforcement officers and law enforcement officers is really anybody that the US or a state government pays or arms or trains, encourages and immunizes from legal consequences to um, detain you, to arrest you, to forcibly relocate you, to imprison you, to, to do any number of things. Um, and the key is that they're like paid and trained by the state or the state or federal government. Um, so this is cops, sheriffs, prosecutors, judges, prison guards, um, anybody and everybody. And when we practice legal self-defense, there's really two considerations that should probably be informing how we apply these skills. Um, so the, the two kind of major determinants of how an interaction goes and how you might want to be thinking about your own legal self-defense practices is who are you and who are you dealing with? I'm gonna start with the second question of that. Who are you dealing with? Um, and there are kind of two main categories of people you might be dealing with in terms of agents of the state. Uh, and there are um, immigration authorities. So Department of Homeland Security was formed in I think 2001 after 9-11. Um, and that is ICE, Border Patrol and USCIS. Um, USCIS are like the desk people that you don't really interact with that much um, unless you are um, like filing paperwork or trying to, you know, proceed on the path to citizenship or get a visa or whatnot, but they don't come out into communities. Um, ICE and CBP are coming out into communities. ICE internally and CBP along the border within 100 miles of Canada, Mexico, or the oceans. Um, and when you're dealing with immigration authorities, really the key difference is that prevention is of the utmost importance. So you want to prevent people from getting caught up in that system. You want to prevent um, people's constitutional rights from being violated. Um, you want to you you want to just like stop the bad things before they even happen. Um, and I see the comment in the chat. Uh, I think it's okay that the recording is on, although we can check in about how it's shared after. Um, so the the goal is prevention because immigration courts are just like like courts in general are horrific and racist and arbitrary and violent, but immigration court in particular, there's basically no rules. Like people do whatever they want. The government has like rampant freedom to just invent whatever they wanna do and do it as they go along. Um, a friend of mine is an immigration attorney and she describes it like in all seriousness as like traffic court with the death penalty. It's, it's horrible. So keeping people out of that system as much as possible by preventing. Um, state law enforcement, that's a different story. That's like sheriffs, constables, municipal police, state troopers. Um, prevention is still really important and should be the goal, but uh, documentation is somewhat more of a viable option. Like you can, you're slightly more likely to be able to claw your rights back after they've been violated um, in a courtroom because the court has a little bit more adherence to the rules, but again, it's all a rigged biased system. Um, and like all that being said, these strategies like don't always work. Um, Anybody can get arrested for anything. Um, anybody can get shot for anything. Anybody can really like experience um, all kinds of harm just for existing. And that um, is mostly a function uh, of like who you are and not how well you've memorized legal self-defense strategies and whatnot. So, um, you know, legal self-defense is not a magic shield. Like we're just trying to get in the habits of doing the best we can. 
and who are you? That's that's the biggest determinant really of how law enforcement interactions will go. Um, the US Constitution like purportedly applies to everybody, even undocumented folks, but in reality, you know, we all see like the ways that different people have their rights respected or not, um, have their autonomy respected or not based on just like how that cop feels that day and their interactions with you based on your projected identity. So the question is, who does a cop see when they look at you? Um, and this is where like a huge limitation for these kinds of trainings, especially with a trainer, like a white trainer comes in. Um, my personal strategies are gonna be totally limited because I've developed them based on how cops treat me. Um, and so you're gonna definitely want to trust your experiences with cops and trust your identities. And you know how a cop is more likely to treat you. So if the way that I phrase something, um, when I'm like, oh, I would say this to a cop and you're like, wow, that would be a horrible idea for me. Like you are a hundred percent right. Don't listen to how I would phrase it. Um, trust yourself on that because um, right, kindness and brutality are both tactics that police are trained to use to achieve their ultimate institutional goal and which one we might receive in any given moment um, says way more about like our projected identities than it does about what we're doing, how well we know the law or like the personality of that cop. So um, it's, yeah, this is like important for me to write be upfront about the identities and projected identities that I have so that you can decide what's gonna work for you or not. Um, if we do have on this call any other uh, white settlers who are gender non-conforming and able-bodied and about five foot four, um, financially and academically privileged, downwardly class mobile anarchists with facial piercings and law degrees driving their mom's old Subarus. You can apply all of this exactly as I'm doing it, maybe, but everybody else, like, um, really try to interpret this for yourself. Um, and the other thing about that, too, is, like, it depends on who you're with. So how I interact with a cop when I'm in a multiracial space um, is going to impact the experience of my friends who are Black or Indigenous or people of color in my vicinity. The last thing that I want to do is be a little punk and like escalate with a cop because like cops, when they get afraid, that's when they're most dangerous. If I make a cop afraid, they're going to take that out most likely on like my Black friend sitting next to me, not on me. So being really aware of like uh, trying to have the best possible consent culture with how you're interactions impact the people around you and what they're comfortable with um, and also like things like when you learn self-defense it can be um, really feel empowering to be like oh I want to help my community I, I see a cop um, talking to somebody on the street and like I want to go in and be a part of that conversation to help them out like um, consent is really important there too because we don't want to take autonomy away from um, other people like civilians in that situation. Um, nothing feels worse than when you're like, I got this and someone cuts in and like makes you feel like you must need saving because they're trying to save you. So try to get some eye contact, try to like have a quick verbal, hey, are you good? Like, do you want company or some kind of way to check in with somebody if you're doing any kind of intervention with legal self-defense? Um, because you never know what somebody is feeling in that moment or whether they want help. And a lot of times it is really helpful to have um, have a buddy there or to have a buddy who's been trained in legal self-defense, but like consent is really important. And that's really the only thing that we can control is how we treat each other and not how cops treat us. So um, I guess like giving an anecdote of that, I was teaching a friend of mine how to drive a couple of years ago. Um, and she is a Jamaican immigrant and we were, um, she's black. Uh, we were in rural Vermont, a state trooper pulled us over and me and my like legal self-defense brain was like, oh, like, do you want me to film? Like, do you have your phone? Like, and she was like, no, I'd rather, um, you know, I'd rather not film this interaction. Like, and could you do the talking? And it was one of those, like, I don't want to supersede what I think is right with her personal experience. Like she knows herself best. She knows what makes her feel safe in that interaction. Like, I'm not going to film, even if maybe I think like, oh, that would be smart because like, ultimately what is smart is respecting her um, her position in that moment and respecting her, like knowing herself best and how that interaction is going to feel. And like her autonomy is way more important than my like Virgo nerd brain being like, oh, but we should do this. Like, no, just like be open and honest with your, with your kind of people around you so that like you can make a plan together and try not to like, um, impact other people with how you're handling a cop interaction. So I'm going to put folks into breakout rooms if you want to, and uh, 
have a couple of questions. I can like model going through it and then we can do breakout rooms. Um, there are, let's see, six breakout rooms. And what did Alfonso, are they? Um, Alfonso was helping out with tech. So I was thinking that like one through five could be um, anybody of any race and then breakout room number six for BIPOC folks. If you want a space that is just for you like to caucus and not um, be in breakout rooms with white people, you're welcome to go to breakout room number six. White people go to breakout rooms one through five um, and then kind of go from there. But we're gonna spend 10 minutes um, talking and kind of keeping in mind the um, ground rules and assumptions that we've gone over a couple of times in the thing. Let me put those in the chat. Uh, the radical gathering ground rules and assumptions. Thanks so much to the, the planning team for putting those together. That's amazing. Um, just keeping those in mind when we are having these conversations. But um, if people want to just maybe try like introducing themselves and talking about one of these questions that um, feels meaningful to you. So um, I can give an example. We've heard a bit about my identities and um, privileges in the ways that that influences how cops treat me. Um, when I talk to cops, I get really nervous. I get really like squirrely and freaked out. And um, that causes me to often go into one of my like fear and trauma responses, which is to turn everything into a joke. And that does not play well. Like it is not, it is a thing that I'm really trying to program out of myself because like I just turn into like a little mouthy punk and that often escalates in a way that is not good for me or the people around me. It often like, um, you know, has the ability to put my friends at risk when I'm like, you know, scared. And that's my like default nerve response is like to be funny in a situation that is fundamentally not funny. So that's a thing that I'm working to change about myself. And um, that is something that maybe you all want to talk about in breakout rooms. Like, what does it feel in your body? Um, how does your cop demeanor manifest? Are you um, you know, do you cry? Are you making jokes? Are you angry? Like any of those things, everything is valid. Um, and I'm going to, uh, yeah, see if we want to pause on this and take 10 minutes to hang out in breakout rooms. Um, and I don't know how we make that happen. Can we uh, just put the questions in the chat first? I'm working on it now. So that way everybody has... Uh yeah has that accessible to them yeah thank um, you okay. how's that perfect okay cool so uh yeah breakout rooms one through five for white people or anybody and uh six if you are uh bipoc and want to have a space that is just for bipoc welcome back everybody um, I don't know if this is visible in the chat, but I just made a shareable version of these slides. Um, so if it's easier for you to get out of the like share screen mode, um, oh, Ryan, you read my mind, um, <laughs> then feel free to like close out of the one that's me doing it and look at it on your own, um, screen if that's easier. And in terms of like sharing these I think it's probably fine to just share them around with whoever but don't tell anyone you got them from me um and yeah so just kind of diving back into it when people are um are mostly back in the room thanks everybody for connecting with each other I hope that the conversations went well um and we're gonna just dive right into like kind of thinking about uh, the ways that we wish we maybe had a different response when we're interacting with law enforcement or the ways that we want to try to have a little bit more autonomy or control um, as much as we possibly can in these interactions with cops, recognizing that um, at the end of the day, law enforcement really does just get to do whatever they want. And a lot of our job is just influencing what it is that they want to do. Uh, so I have two pretty like uh, major, like if, if you really can only take like one or two things away from this conversation, um, taking away the reality that cops lie to you, uh, that they are trained to lie to you to get what they want, that they um, like basically go to school to like learn how to manipulate you. Um, and that it is everything from them saying that maybe they have evidence against you in order to get you to confess to something like, oh, I, uh, your friend, 
already confessed, but if you sign this admission statement, it'll be easier on you. Um, your friend didn't confess, they don't even know your friend, but then you've signed the statement and that becomes like incrimination and, and that kind of thing or everything from uh, like, I don't know, just saying, oh, like if you don't do this, that's gonna be a felony when really maybe the thing that you're doing is a petty misdemeanor, but they just wanna scare you into stopping doing it. So um, thinking about the phrase, I want you to believe that and imagining that that's how cops start every sentence. Um, so I could think of a time when um, and this is all, when I say cops, I mean like also border patrol, ICE, um, prosecutors, like any anybody that is again, like paid by the state and immunized from legal consequences for kidnap and murder. Um, so the last time that uh, I talked to somebody from border patrol, um, I was going through a checkpoint and decided to just not say anything in order to kind of like see if I could draw resources. Um, and so when you go through a border patrol checkpoint um, within 100 miles of the border, they ask, are you a citizen? Um, and this was in uh, Vermont. And so it's, you know, a, a different thing when it's on the southern border, like border patrol is different geographically. So definitely, again, like, take this with a grain of salt. And for folks who live in the southern part um, of this region or country, like, you know, apply this differently, because it's not maybe the way that this would go in that area. But in Vermont, you say, if you say nothing, um, they ask you to pull your car aside and they put spike strips in front of your tires and then they circle your car, often with sniffer dogs and like a bunch of border patrol agents. They like film you, they look up your license plate, they do all these things and they say, um, we're gonna keep you here until you talk to us. And what they're really saying is, I want you to believe that we're gonna keep you here until you talk to us. So every time a cop, um, you know, opens their mouth and says something to you, imagine that that's how they're starting their sentence. I want you to believe that whatever they're saying. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're lying. It just means that they're telling you exactly what they want you to think um, and to be critical of that. Um, the second thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with law enforcement is that um, really at the end of the day, like memorizing the law is not going to help you that much because cops don't actually care whether they're following the law. Um, they are right. They are the law. And the best thing that you can do is just like try to um, control like their emotional state of being because how they're feeling in that moment is gonna basically dictate what what they do much more than like, did you memorize the right phrase and use it at the right time? So de-escalation could be a whole training in and of itself. Like I'll just really quickly go into a couple things. And again, like this is different based on things like neurodiversity, but about 90% of communication is tone and body language. So um, I want to have like my hands with open palms and like low down by my sides. Um, if you can like deepen your voice a little bit and speak slowly, um, not moving quickly, that kind of thing. Um, Personal space is also really important if you get too close to a cop that like makes them angsty, try to stand on the side of their body that is not where their gun is if you're in a position where you're able to maneuver with relation to them. Um, things like eye contact are really like projected identity specific. So um, like for me as a white person, like kind of masculine presenting, like I'm gonna make a little bit of eye contact but I might not wanna make a ton and I might not wanna make none. But again, that's like, trust your gut and like you know yourself best with regards to things like um how to how to interact with space and eye contact um the other thing if you know in advance that you're going into a situation where you're going to be interacting with law enforcement do your favorite grounding exercise like really try to be in your body as much as possible try not to be nervous even though that's totally understandable to be nervous because that's how cops are trained to make you feel um but like just go into it as much as possible um, with like attention to your breath, because if you can exude just a little bit of calmness, like your, your escalation is going to make the cop afraid and cops are most dangerous when they are afraid. Um, and then like the last thing is just like, you can't really reason, like it's not, like getting into an argument is um, as much as it might be your instinct, especially if you're someone like me who gets really nervous around cops, like uh, try to try to memorize and practice the key phrases so that if you are like a nervous word vomiter, you vomit out something that is helpful to you, that is safer, um, less incriminating than maybe what you otherwise would say. So key phrases, um, and if you want, 
to say them with me, that'd be awesome. You can unmute or you can stay on mute, whatever, but let's just say all these together. And then later on, like practice them again, like get your roommate or your housemate or your friend to pretend to be a cop and pretend um, that you're in situations and really actually try to get these into your muscle memory, because that's really the only way um, to access them when you're in a really heightened emotional state. So uh, starting with the first one, you can say, am I free to go? Am I free to go? Or the same, it's the same, means the same thing, but a different phrasing is, am I being detained? Am, am I being, being detained? Detain. Uh, this is a really key one. I have a right to remain silent. I have a right to remain silent. Um, you have a right to remain silent just anytime up and until you are in custody with a lawyer next to you. So um, there is one exception for the 22 states where you have to say your name when you're detained and we'll get into that. But except for that one exception, you always have a right to remain silent and it is almost always the best course of action to just not talk. Um, I have a right to remain silent and just raise that shield. Once you say that, they're supposed to stop talking to you. Um, but then if they say like, oh, um, you know, how do you like, that's a nice bird over there. And you say, oh yeah, that is a beautiful bird. You've just waved your right and they can start talking to you again. But all you have to do is say it again and that lifts the shield up. So I have a right to remain silent. Um, the other thing you might want to be really explicit about is something like, I do not consent to the search. I do not consent to a search. I do not consent to If they're physically interacting with you, like if they are physically like touching you, rifling through your stuff, like going in your pockets, going in, like if they are like have their hands on you, um, something you might want to add to that is I'm not resisting, but I do not consent to the search because it's always bad to to really like put any kind of physical force into an interaction with the cop. So being explicit, saying that out loud, um, saying that with witnesses, have somebody nearby like perceiving you to say that. That's why it's always good to have a buddy with you when you're interacting with cops so that somebody hears you when you are very explicit and you say, I'm not resisting, but I don't consent to this search. Um, and then the last thing that's good to know is like ask for a warrant um, and we'll talk about when you would do that. Uh, so there's there's three levels of police or ICE or Border Patrol interaction. I'm going to just run down the three levels really quickly and then apply them to um, different scenarios like different specific like what what how does this work when you're in a car? How does this work when you're in your house? How does this work when you're out in a park somewhere? So the first level is general questioning. Um, cops can do this at any time for any reason. They don't need any like proof to get there. They just, they're going to chit chat. Um, and the, the best way to handle that interaction is to get out of it as soon as possible, because the more access that you give them to like talk to you, the more that you make yourself vulnerable to being lied to. Um, and cops lie to get what they want. And like the best way to like, uh, not even have to decide, am I being lied to is just don't give them the opportunity to even talk to you in the first place. Um, what they're going to want to do if they have a motive is to escalate these levels of interaction. So the, to go from general questioning to being detained, um, which is where they have the ability to make sure that you stay in that place. Um, it's not arrest, but it's like you're just you're stuck there and they can hold you briefly um, to try to look for that level of proof that they need to get to arrest or search. So they're they're just looking for the foothold that they need to get to the next level. Um, and your goal is to get out of the interaction if you can, and if you can't, to just like put that wall up so that they don't get what they need to go to the next level. Uh, the standard for detaining, they need reasonable suspicion. Um, we'll talk more about you know, what to do and what to say in different contexts. And then arrest is where they have full control over your body. They can put you in the cop car. They can you know, take you down to the station. They can put you in jail. They can initiate criminal proceedings. And that requires either probable cause, like more than 50% chance that you've done the thing based on facts that they can articulate, um, or a warrant. And we'll talk more about warrants. Um, the same standard for arrest is for search, because when you get arrested, part of that is that they get to search your whole body, everything that you have on you and like anything kind of in your wingspan immediate area. So those are the three levels. I ran through them really fast, but we're gonna slow down and apply them. Um, also, this is a card that uh, a friend of mine and I use for other trainings. And if you want, I can drop the link in the chat afterwards or send it out um, to like print out and share around. Um, 
and don't tell anyone where you got it. Um, <laughs> the first situation we could talk through is like what happens when you're out and about like in a public space. So this could be sitting in a park, um, you know, going down the sidewalk or just like generally out in the world, um, not in a car. And assuming that you're starting from general questioning, like that a cop's just gonna come up to you and be like, hey, how's it going? Or, um, hey, like I have some questions for you or any number of things. Um, and your goal again is to just like not give them access to your ears and your like thoughts so as to like lie to you um, to get you to give them grounds to escalate that interaction or to like get information that puts someone else in danger. So you wanna get out of there, put the wall up, get out of that interaction. The best way to do that is just to say, um, you know, I don't wanna talk to you. And you can literally straight up say, I don't wanna talk to you. Um, or you can say, am I being detained? Am I free to go? Um, so if, if they say, yes, you're being detained, um, then you have to stay. But if they say, no, you're not being detained or yes, you're free to go, um, you wanna just get out of that situation. And you wanna, again, be mindful of the de-escalation things. So like whether or not you make eye contact as you're leaving, that is like a, you know, you know yourself best in your identity and whether that feels safe. Um, do not like go really close to them. Like you wanna give them a wide berth as you're leaving and you wanna wait till they tell you it's okay. Cause even if you're legally allowed to leave, um, you know, they could just make up some reason to like tackle you on your way out because cops can do that if they feel like it, um, even if it's technically unconstitutional. So leaving as safely as you can. If you are being detained, you just wanna like shut down and hang tight. Um, there are stop and identification laws in these 20, three states that are listed there with, I think I got all the state acronyms right. Um, if those any of those states are states that you spend a lot of time in, um, take a look at that, write that down and like look up the statute because it is a little different in every state. But generally, if you live in one of those states and you've been detained, you have to tell the cop your name. Um, it doesn't, doesn't count when you're not being detained. So generally questioning you, like cops don't have to, you don't have to tell a cop your name if they just like walk up to you on the street unless you're being detained. Um, but it is a little different in each state, so I would look at that. Um, and when your other things to do is just make sure you're not consenting to a search, uh, make sure that you are not like engaging in chit chat with them. You have a right to remain silent. You should verbally assert that, be explicit, um, and just hang tight and don't let them search you. They can like pat down the outside of your body in some states, but you can also say, hey, I'm not resisting, but just so you know, I don't consent to a search. Even if they're patting down your body and you think they might be allowed to do that, a good thing to do just as a precaution is to say, hey, I'm not resisting, but I don't consent to a search. So that if they do go beyond what they're supposed to do, or if they think they can get away with something, it's like in their brain that, oh, this person like is flexing some legal self-defense knowledge and I maybe don't want to be as invasive as I otherwise would have been. Um, and you can ask them why they're detaining you and try to get them to like say facts. Um, that is yeah basically kind of how you want to just like get out as much as possible avoid the escalation and like don't talk to them even if you're being arrested you still have a right to remain silent so like um you know not making things worse for yourself is really key um the second situation uh is if you're in a car and you get pulled over um that's automatically starting from the place of being detained so when a cop is like you know why I pulled you over? Um, they're asking you, what reasonable suspicion do I have to detain you? Um, and it's probably actually not the best idea to answer. Like if you get pulled over because your taillight is out and then the cop says, do you know why I pulled you over? And you say, oh, I was speeding, right? Like you you just kind of put yourself in worse trouble because now you've given them another crime to put on if they want you. Um, so you want to just like, again, not give them the foothold. You want to hand over your license and registration. In a couple of states, you have like 24 or 48 hours to produce your license and registration. But again, it's sort of like, unless you don't have it and that's why you can't hand it over, advisable just to, to hand it over so that you're not like escalating things um, just to kind of like keep it to the basics. Here's my license, here's my registration, but you don't have to say where you're going. You don't have to say, what you have in the car. You don't have to say like what you've been doing or any of like you just license and registrations and then kind of like, hey, I, I don't want to chit chat or something. I have a right to remain silent or, you know, with all due respect, sir, I don't want to talk to you right now. Like whatever level of politeness or um, like aggression feels appropriate for you to stay safe in that moment. 
um, when they've detained you, what they're doing is they're looking for something to like get you with basically. So they could pace around your car and look through your windows. Um, they can't go in your car unless A, you consent. So if they say, hey, can I take a look in your trunk? You would say, I don't consent to a search or you would just say, no, I don't, you can't do that. Um, but if they see something through a window, it's called the plain view exception um, that looks illegal to them. So like, say, you know, you have some like spilled baking soda on your car seat or you have like, I don't know, uh, you're in a state where there's like uh, different firearm registration laws and they can see a gun and they think that you maybe have that like without filling out the paperwork or getting the license, then they could go in um, because they see something that they've decided is illegal in plain view and they can open your door and actually like search through your whole car. So um, trying to make sure your car is clean um, from the like outside looking in perspective and being aware of things that might be totally legal but look illegal um, just because they're going to grasp at any excuse. Um, it's also a good idea when you go to a protest to keep your windows rolled up and your car locked because cops have been known to plant stuff in plain view um, in your car when they want an excuse to then pull you over for a, a traffic pretext and search it later. Um, they say that, what is it? A cop can follow anybody for five minutes and find a pretext to pull them over. So it's really just like um, trying to make sure that you, you do as much as possible to minimize the footholds that you can give them later. Um, if they arrest you, uh, they can't just like search your whole car. So say, say you've got a warrant out for your arrest and you get pulled over. Um, and they say, oh, are you this person? Like, here's your arrest warrant. You're under arrest. That doesn't mean that they then get to look through your trunk. Like they can search your immediate wingspan area, but they can't search the whole car. Um, unless they again, have your consent or they can see something in plain view. So it's really important to be verbally explicit, like, they're going to make you think that your consent is going to help you get out of there faster, but like you never know what they're going to say that they've found. And it's just always a good idea to refuse to consent to a search and to be like really firm about that. Um, that is, yeah, the kind of quick and dirty car um, legal self-defense. Also noting that if you're a passenger in a car, you never have to say anything. Um, Law enforcement at your house is like actually the easiest one. Like just don't answer the door. Um, if a cop knocks on your door, like try to make sure it's locked and just like don't answer the door um, and hope that they go away. Uh, if they're like really coming back again and again, or if you're worried that they're gonna break your door down or you like accidentally answer the door and then realize it's a cop, um, don't have the door wide open and just like talk through a wide open door. The best thing to do if you're comfortable with this is to step outside and close the door behind you. If you're not comfortable with that to just like tiny crack, open it a tiny bit. Um, and really what you just wanna say is like, I don't wanna talk to you. Um, you don't wanna be having a chit chat with them. Um, I've like known cops to be like, pretend that they're looking for like a lost kid and like really they're looking for somebody who they believe to like have crossed the border without paperwork and that they're just going to call CVP as soon as they find out where this kid is. So even if they're like, this puppy is about to die, unless you tell me um, this fact that I want to know, what they're saying is, I want you to believe that this puppy is going to die unless you like narc. And there is no legal obligation to um, give information to police when they're just like questioning you, right? So it's, um, it's always good to be skeptical about like what they're asking you and why and to just not give them that opportunity to just say, I don't want to talk to you. Um, if they try to come in your house, um, they need a warrant or probable cause like something that they can see in plain sight that's illegal. Um, but it has to be probable cause that you've committed a crime for them to arrest you. It has to be probable cause that you have committed a crime for them to search you. It can't be like, I think that you have evidence um, on in your pocket that is about your neighbor's bank robbery. Like, that's not you, that's your neighbor. That doesn't get them to abrogate your Fourth Amendment rights. So, you know, being really clear about like, if you want to come in my house, like, you need a warrant, ask to see it, and it has to be like really specific. It has to have your correct address on it. It has to, um, it has to be a search warrant or like an arrest warrant with that address on it. If it's just like a, you know, general, um, arrest warrant for the wrong house, if it's more than 10 days old, um, and if it's a search warrant, like, what are they searching for? If they are searching for a human being, 
um, they can't come in your house and look in your jewelry box. Like it's gotta be a, like the search has to be for what they are looking for and it has to be to that area. Sometimes there'll be time limits on the warrant. Like they have to execute it within this hour to that hour. And if it's outside the time window, like, sorry, they have to go home. So ask to see the warrant and like take your time looking at it. Um, and then I wanna flag too, when you're dealing with immigration authorities, be really wary of forms 205 and 200. And that'll say it right on the bottom of the form. Um, those are not warrants that are valid in any way for abrogating Fourth Amendment rights. So they don't actually have a judge's signature. Like uh, they have like a stack of these forms in the back of their vans and they fill them out themselves and the judge doesn't sign it. It doesn't actually mean that they have any right to search your house, to go anywhere, like to have access to you or your car. So if you see, if somebody hands you that warrant, like you can just, you know, this isn't valid. This is not signed by a judge. You can't come in my house. Um, and that's what I mean about immigration authorities. Like don't even let them, because if you, if you say, uh oh, it's a warrant and you let them in your house, even if it wasn't a valid warrant in immigration court, it's so much harder to claw that right back. So you have to like really shut the door in their face and not let them get away with something because the court, immigration court doesn't care if they didn't have a constitutional right to search your house. They're just going to make up the rules. So really check the warrant. And um, here's an example of a judicial warrant versus an administrative ICE warrant. The judicial warrant is, is valid. Let me see if I can zoom in. Um, oh, nope. I need to not try to be fancy. But uh, the judicial warrant is valid. And uh, the ICE warrant is not. It doesn't get them access to your house. So really being careful of that. Um, other things specific to Border Patrol and immigration, uh, generally the same rules apply to the Constitution. They need reasonable suspicion to detain you and probable cause to arrest you, with one exception, and that is Border Patrol doesn't need reasonable suspicion to detain you when you're within 100 miles of the border. Um, that's what that map is on the right side of the screen. That's two-thirds of our population. So two-thirds of the population of the so-called United States lives in an area where Border Patrol can just like detain you for literally no reason. Um, and that's, again, just like one of those, um, yeah, really just they're going to pull you over and it's blatantly going to be about race or accent or how they perceive you to be. Um, so a good way to handle that if you are somebody who has white privilege and citizenship privilege um, to just like be like, I'm not going to talk to you. Um, and exercise that right so that it becomes less conspicuous when people who are being profiled also exercise that right. Um, ICE and Border Patrol, they don't have any authority to enforce state criminal laws, but they probably are gonna lie to you to make you think that they can. So you're not gonna like get pulled over for having a taillight out by ICE. Um, they can't enforce those laws. Like they're only allowed to enforce federal immigration laws. Um, when you go through a Border Patrol checkpoint, that's the only thing that they should be um, that they have the authority to be engaging with and you don't have to talk to them. Nobody else in the car has to talk but the driver. The driver doesn't even have to talk. Like you can just say, I don't want to talk to you. And they can detain you for any reason because you're within a hundred miles of the border. But beyond that, they're not supposed to be able to do anything. Um, the other special privilege is within 25 miles of the border. They can come on your land. They can go into your outbuildings, but not your like homes, your dwellings um, for any reason. So if ICE or Border Patrol like gets on a bus, like a public transit bus and they're, you know, they pull it over and they're like about to go up and down and ask every single person if they're a citizen, um, a good thing to do if you feel comfortable doing this might be to go to the front and say, hey, and just be super loud so that everybody on the bus can hear you be like really assertive and just say, nobody on this bus is gonna talk to you. All of us are exercising our right to remain silent. So you don't have any business being here, because nobody here is gonna talk to you. And that is, if you do it loud enough, everybody else on the bus can kind of hear that they have that right. Um, and then everybody just can kind of fold their arms and not say anything. And that keeps people safer who might otherwise be targeted, as opposed to if like you let them go up and down and like talk to everybody. Um, so, you know, get with a buddy after this training and practice saying that. Pretend that they're ice that they've gotten on a bus and you just say, nobody on this bus wants to talk to you. We're all exercising our right to remain silent. Um, and like put that wall up. Uh, I think that, yeah, the last, I don't know how I'm doing on time. I'm probably over. Oh, I'm way over. Uh oh. Um, the last thing I wanted to just briefly flag is uh, security culture. So it's not really about like what's legal or illegal or lawful or unlawful. It's 
it's this practice that we get in like a bunch of habits. Um, it's kind of like wearing a seatbelt. You don't wear it because you think you're gonna get in a car accident. You wear it because um, it's an easy way to mitigate the risk that you take when you get in a car that you might get in an accident. So um, a lot of security culture practices is just like thinking about what is the worst possible thing that could happen um, what is the most likely bad thing to happen? And how can I take precautions that are reasonable that allow me to feel more comfortable taking these risks? Um, and the risks might be like government surveillance. It might be getting arrested for doing actions or participating in organizing that is threatening to the state. It might be, um, you know, you want to like, you would use security culture if you're helping a friend get an abortion. You would use security culture um, if you are doing organizing work and being targeted by fascists and bigots and white supremacists. Um, if you are organizing against the pipeline or like any number of things. Um, and it's important to make sure that we like use it as an excuse for community building and not for like being afraid and closed off, right? Like if you're, if you're trying to build a movement, you actually wanna be as inviting as possible. Um, security culture is not about just like never talking to anybody about anything ever. It's about saying like, which information should I be sensitive with and which information can I be free with? Um, so if you're planning a protest and it's public and it's like all out there on the internet, like it's totally fine, um, to talk about that in large groups with people you don't know. If you're planning an underground action where maybe you're gonna like go someplace and like snip a bunch of like power lines and, you know, cause some like good chaos or free a bunch of, um, like animals at a fur farm, like you don't wanna talk about that in front of anybody you don't know. You don't wanna talk about that over unencrypted tech. You don't wanna talk about that um, in front of cameras or really just kind of being, being critical and discerning about what is safe to share with who. Um, and if you tell people that you're doing things that are illegal, like the more that you share that, the more chance you're gonna tell somebody who's gonna use that against you. Um, and the more that you like put your loved ones in the position of having to lie for you. So really trying to like balance what's safe and what's not. Um, and to really try to use that as a reason to get to know each other rather than to be afraid of each other. Like a lot of times um, it's easy to fall into security culture that replicates cop logic, like being suspicious of people who are different than you. And that's like not what this is about. Um, so having really explicit security culture norms can help you because it's like, um, a lot of people like neurodiversity not um, not being the best when you have these vague security culture norms that you have to be neurotypical in order to understand because it's like actually makes it harder for everybody when nobody really knows like what to do or not to do. Just being like, oh, our security culture norm in this moment is that like we don't talk about um, actions that we're planning unless we are in person without technology and just like naming that up front. Um, tech security using encrypted apps but recognizing that if you email somebody's gmail from a proton mail you might as well be using gmail so it has to be end-to-end -end encrypted um and yeah that's i mean there's like a ton more to it i don't know if i want to like deep dive into it but if that's something that you're like oh, i'm curious about this um let's talk after because i i love talking about security culture i think it's really important um and we're basically at the end i don't know if we want to do some breakout rooms or if people want to hop off too i recognize i've been like talking for a long time could share the slides and you could kind of just go do your thing or we could break out into breakout rooms thank you thank you kira uh i love everything that you have shared so far this is really useful and good information for us i think for the sake of time um if you could just share any resources that you want us to have uh we do we did get your email down so that will be shared with everyone for anyone that wants to continue this conversation with you um but i'm thinking we need to move on to um the next piece so we can close this out but thank you thank you so much for your time today and for everything that you shared with us yeah, thanks so much. Y I'll drop all the like extra resources in the chat and please send me an email if you want to talk more about anything. And thank you so much for being here and going through all of this. Yes. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I would like to bring Annabelle forward if that is okay. If Annabelle is ready.
Ryan. Yeah. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Kira. Oh my gosh, I wanted to just stay and hang out with you. Um, I know we all do. It's been a long day. Thank you so much, everyone, for staying in the struggle together for yourself, for each other. Um, I'm Ina Bell. I'm part of the care team for this radical gathering. Because we don't believe in doing this work alone, we are inviting you to our last Radical Care share, Sharing Circle tonight, listening to all the ways our communities and nature are continually harmed is hard to hold, even from a distance. So understanding that, we invite you to the Sharing Circle um, that's going to start in a moment. Um, I'm going to drop in the chat the way to get the the Zoom login, um, if you're not going to, oops, here, I'm going to post it one more time because it didn't make it a link. Um, and then we're going to do some grounding. We're going to share in some small circles and um, just uh, decompress a little bit together. But if you want to party down with Jason, <laughs> um, I think I'm going to, am I passing it to you, Ryan, or Jason? I'll take it from you. Okay, here. cool. All right. So see you over at the circle. We're already there. Otherwise, um, lots of love to everyone. Thank you, Annabelle. Uh, so we may be wrapping up the radical gathering round one. I'll say it again. Round one. This is just the beginning. Um, not only did we take that radical analysis of various problems, we proposed radical solutions. And the way that we ended tonight absolutely showed that. Um, so, wow, I'm just kind of awestruck right now, if I'm being honest. So the resources that we have harvested, they are fruitful. We're excited to share them with you all. We will get the resources that Kira just shared in that. Um, your time and energy is so deeply appreciated throughout this whole weekend. We have covered a lot of content. It's hit a lot of different topics and um, that that energy has been felt. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing this space with us all. All of our panelists and all of you, you deserve the biggest round of applause for sharing their work, their experiences with us. And really, we encourage you all to follow up with the organizations, the people that were here. We've um, collected their uh, ways that you can donate to them, ways that you can support them. So please, if anybody really stood out to you, if everybody stood out to you, uh, show your love and support in the ways that uh, feel comfiest for you. Um, I would also like to mention how awesome and radical this time has been with members from Move to Amend and Jason from A Radical Guide. You all welcomed me in with open arms. I'm so excited to see what comes next for us all. I know this energy will continue forward. Um, and with that, I throw it to the long-awaited discussion of what now. We have this resource list. We're going to share it with you all, but we want there to be next steps. So our email, info at radicalgathering.com, will still be active. Our website will still be active. So please reach out to us. Let us know your ideas of how you want to carry on this conversation. And if there's anything that we missed that we want to address at a future time. So please, info at radicalgathering.com, email us, stay in touch. Um, and really, the next step that we can all take right now is to take a pause and dive into the radical care sharing circle that Inabel and our care team has set up for us. You do have to register for that. Um, so the link that is in the chat, um, be sure to open that, put in your information, and then you'll get connected to the Zoom room. That act of self-care is radical, and this is a way that we can all collectively come together in one space and share that 
moment of centering ourselves after everything that we've experienced this weekend. Um, so listen to your body in this time and it's okay to step back and be present with that weight that you feel and join the radical sharing circle. Experience that with us. We're all feeling something and it could be joy. It could be um, just this weight from the abolition panels that we covered and how we're feeling about that and what directions we wanna go in with that. So please join the radical care circle. It'll be a good time. Thank you all. Um, if there's anybody else from the planning, team that wants to say anything, go for it. Um, but yeah, I hope to see you over in the care sharing circle.